You're listening to an Irish Medical Times podcast. I'm Nora Garrity, and I'm speaking to three members of Autistic Doctors International. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Sebastian Shaw, or Seb, and I'm currently an honorary clinical lecturer at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, where I specialize in neurodivergence in medical education and practice, with particular interests in dyslexia and autism. I'm also currently the research lead for Autistic Doctors International. I'm Sue McCowan. I'm an older people psychiatrist in Dorset. I discovered Autistic Doctors International some time ago and am now the psychiatry lead. I'm also on the Royal College of Psychiatrists Autism Group um, and also on the Disability Scoping Group for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I'm Dr Mary Doherty. I'm founder of Autistic Doctors International and I'm also a consultant anaesthetist in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Autistic Doctors International was founded in 2019. We have around 500 members across the globe at this point and we also have an associated group for autistic med students. Can you tell me why you felt there was a need for this group? I was initially diagnosed as autistic in 2013 and it was the best thing that ever happened. It explains so much of things that had happened in my life previously and then I found the autistic community and it was a sense of just connection and understanding in a way that I hadn't previously had but then as time went on I started to realize that I needed to connect with medical peers as well and as I looked around medicine I realized there's so many autistic doctors in all sorts of fields and I just realized that it was something that we just didn't talk about and then I was lucky enough to meet up with a couple of other autistic doctors and became involved then in an organization for neurodivergent doctors in general and just realized in that that we needed our own space really because some of the challenges and issues that we face as autistic doctors are not really shared by otherwise neurodivergent doctors and it started with seven of us and very rapidly grew to um, to where we're at now. A question for all of you. When and how did you realise that you were autistic? My son was diagnosed. Um, he was picked up initially at nursery when it was suggested to me that he had sensory issues. I had no clue what that meant. I was stunned when somebody suggested autism or an assessment for autism. I hadn't noticed that any of the issues that were in hindsight, clearly, you know, really, really obvious autistic traits. I didn't spot that any of them were in any way unusual because that's how I was. That's how lots of kids in my family were. That's how I thought most kids were. So I was really stunned. And then as I learned more about autism and I realized, well, if he's autistic, I certainly am. And that's when I then went and had an assessment for myself because I needed that validation because I didn't want to be just wondering, is this relevant to me? So, yeah, so I went and had an assessment and yeah, sure enough. Do you mind telling me how old you were when you were diagnosed? Oh, I was in my mid forties. Do you think it would have helped if you'd known earlier on? Now that's a really interesting question. In some ways, yes. But I also think that it's quite likely that if I had known earlier, I probably wouldn't be a doctor today. Because you would have thought that you had limitations. Not so much myself, but probably the people around me would have limited my potential. And also there were times throughout my career that were just so difficult that if I'd had a label at that time, I'm quite sure people would have, you know, advised me that, look, this is just too hard. Do something else. Give up. Whereas for me, in hindsight, it was just that 
autistic, monotropic, hyper-focus determination to proceed regardless of the obstacles that really got me through. So I was uh, also relatively late to my autism diagnosis. I was 28 when I was diagnosed um, and had already been working as a doctor for several years. Looking back, it was, as Mary said, it was blindingly obvious for my whole life. I, you know, all the strengths that come with being autistic and some of the drawbacks. But I didn't really recognise recognize it as being autistic until my mid-twenties, really, early to mid-twenties. At the time, I remember my ex-boyfriend used to, used to joke about it and call me his little autistic um, <laughs> when I would act slightly unusual <laughs> and anxious in social circumstances. And I suppose that planted a seed in, in, in my head somewhere that maybe, maybe I was autistic. And then I remember chatting with an occupational health colleague at one point, and he also suggested that I was probably autistic. And He'd suggested that in a very positive neurodiversity affirmative way, based on kind of a half hour's chat with me saying, you've got all these really great strengths. Have you thought about the fact you might be autistic? Because these are all really associated with autistic people and played it off in a really positive way. And that kind of solidified it for me and overcame I suppose the stereotype that's often reinforced during medical training of the, the kind of grumpy, grumpy male, surly child. So at that stage, I talked to a friend who has known me since I was born. They were a trained transactional analytic psychotherapist. And I said, what do you think? You've known me 28 years. Um, and th their response was, of course you're autistic. What of it? <laughs> <laughs> they were surprised I was asking them, like, well, what of it? So on the back of that, I went and spoke to my now retired GP. Um, who also did the same thing, kind of talked around it with me in the appointment and went, yeah, I mean, it sounds likely, why not? So he pinged off a referral for me. I waited a couple of years. In the UK, the NHS does have provisions for autism diagnoses as part of our, our general health care, uh, but only through specialist services and the waits are many years. So I got an initial letter saying it'll be about two or three years. And then a couple of years in, I got another letter going, it's probably going to be another three or four years. Um, so at that point, I then prayed for a private assessment. I think we all go through that I, identity crisis almost go, what if what I think I am at the core of my being is not true? What will I be then? <laughs> uh, so I paid for a private assessment uh, with, a again, a lovely, really neurodiversity affirmative psychiatrist who, again, played the interview to my strengths, really highlighted some of the positive aspects, ended it by saying, I think you'd be fantastic in psychiatry if you'd ever like a job. <laughs> and kind of verified my self-identity at that stage. So I, I, I did some Googling, joined Autistic Doctors International, I want to say within a day or two of being diagnosed. I wanted to know before, before I joined something. So then I joined ADI and I kind of sat in the background for two, three months. Uh, and then the idea of research came up um, and I got talking to Mary and one thing led to another and somehow I've ended up the research lead uh, so doing a lot of the academic stuff that we do. So your, your experiences and your whole journey to finding your about your autism has been pretty positive. Yes I think so. You have a negative view of autism before? So before I considered that I might be autistic myself I didn't know much about autism to be honest. I was already a doctor by the time it crossed my mind so I'd been through undergraduate medical training in the UK. I don't remember a single lecture on autism itself at any stage in the curriculum and in terms of revising for medical school finals so our qualifying exams really the only place it would, was coming up is in very stereotyped uh, multiple choice questions around young boys presenting as non-speaking or 
this child won't make eye contact, has no friends, what do you think the diagnosis is? It was very much reinforcing stereotypes around the, the current phrasing of the, of the DSM criteria for diagnosis. So that's all I really knew of it, and I hadn't given it any thoughts. So each stage when someone suggested to me that my idiosyncrasies, my, my, my wonderful eccentric oddities, might be related to autism, because they were suggested in such positive ways, it kind of helped me to develop, a re from my point of view, a really good view of autism that was never grounded in a negative stereotype other than a few questions at med school. You think things have changed? I think there's enough of us voicing the positives of neurodiversity that things are starting to change and certainly my the medical school I work at now is is, is pretty good and is is spending a lot of time listening to those of us with lived experience and I think the more of us coming out uh, as autistic uh, in the profession the better it is getting but there's still a very long way to go. The curriculum hasn't changed. So what's being taught currently to students and indeed to doctors in training um, is still the old pathology-based, deficit-based model. With um, the exception of my medical school. Yeah, yeah. My medical school is the, is the first in the UK to be running a trial programme called Time for Autism. Uh, so I can't speak for Time for Autism because it's nothing to do with me, but it looks fabulous. Basically, they attach medical students to families with autistic children to go and spend time with them across the course of their undergraduate training to learn what it's like. So I was um, seeing an, an autism consultant for my son um, and towards the end she said to me, or oh, have you ever considered that you might be autistic? And I said, oh, I think I'm, I'm just weird for other reasons <laughs> because I had picked up over the years that people did seem to think that I was different in some way. But I'm quite a sort of sensible down-to-earth person and most of the things I suggested had seemed sensible and you know solution focused and so, so I, I I couldn't quite understand why it was that people thought I was different but it had been there all my life right since early childhood and I had basically done a series of workarounds worked out what what seemed to be acceptable what was wanted copied that you know although the social communication side of things might not have come innately I'm certainly not faking it. You know, as children, we learn all sorts of things, don't we? I think people would be pretty cross if, if we said they were faking things. So I'm a very genuine person and I am genuinely driven by the need to connect with people. So nobody would ever have thought in a million years that I was going to be diagnosed as autistic. I, I'm, I'm a bridge builder, a diplomat, a communicator. I come out very well in communication skills with patients. I'm, I'm a team player. Um, I've got decent eye contact. I've got a sense of humour. I'm not particularly abrupt usually, um, although I have my moments, but usually when, when it's something I'm passionate about. I certainly always had intense interest, but because they weren't unusual things, I didn't do stamp collecting or line things up in a row. I, you know, nothing that you'd recognise from those stereotypical textbook things. Um, and it's been a complicated process getting assessment for my son, which I now realise, sadly, is completely normal. Yeah. Years of confusion and people disagreeing and not clear what service does what. And I did a very long parent summary <laughs> with a lot of detail. And of course, that's classically autistic, isn't it? To, to, to give very detailed evidence in a sort of 10 page dossier. Yeah. I did say to my mum before I left for the appointment, oh, look, now I've written this, they're going to think I'm autistic. Well, she said to me, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> and, and of course, it was completely right. I, I didn't really know 
what it meant. I probably just had that vague stereotypical idea, but I didn't deal with it at work particularly. So, you know, as a friendly person who seemed to be good at consultation skills and I've got lots of friends and married and kids and everything, it didn't really occur to me. But, but the more books I read, particularly about, you know, more female, commonly female type presentation, the more I realised it did fit with me. And, and then I found the crowd of people who also have, um, you know, high empathy. It's a very broad term, isn't it? But I, I sort of thought that had to be missing and it's certainly not missing for me at all. I mean, that's the reason why I'm, why I'm a doctor, putting myself in other people's shoes. So ultimately... I did decide to get a diagnosis. I did it privately. And as almost everyone finds, at the last minute, we start thinking, I'm going to be the one person that isn't autistic out of this peer group. And are you going to make me leave if I'm not autistic? Because I feel like I found my second family and actually I would be so sad to lose you all. (laughs) But I think so far, nobody's been told that they aren't autistic because we've all had such a long journey to get there. And done so much reading in detail that it's it's pretty unlikely that we wouldn't be. Initially, I can remember searching really hard and not being able to find any other autistic doctor. Like I really thought I was the only one for 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 quite some time. And then I found a couple of anonymous uh, articles by various people who are now members of the group. You think they're afraid to disclose? Oh, absolutely. And that's still that's still an issue ten years later. A lot of our members are not openly autistic. We started off about, you know, peer support initially, and then people started having challenges in relation to either their training or their working lives or, you know, whatever that were clearly due to a lack of understanding of autism. I mean, we've had a trainee ejected from from training on the basis that they were autistic. As soon as they disclosed that they were autistic, they were basically told, well, being autistic is incompatible with being, um, you know, a doctor and they were rejected from training. We were able to, you know, support that trainee to challenge that at appeal. And that trainee was reinstated and got, got an apology. Then we started doing a bit more sort of wider advocacy for, for the group as such, you know, just through things that we were writing, conferences that we were presenting at to just really raise awareness because most autistic doctors are undiagnosed. Most autistic doctors don't realize that they're autistic. You know, loads of us are doing great and managing absolutely fine. But there's a large group of autistic doctors who are unsupported, undiagnosed and really, you know, struggling with significant mental health issues. I know that there's a connection between physician suicide, for example, and undiagnosed autism. I mean, we know that the rates of suicide amongst doctors are appallingly high. I know that there's a connection there. Recognizing that you're autistic and getting access to neurodiversity, affirmative knowledge around autism and peer support. It's just been the most positive thing for, I think, the majority of our members. Since Seb has joined us, we've become much more active in terms of research and writing, which I think has been really important just in terms of raising awareness much more widely, because what we want to do is change the landscape in healthcare around autism. We want to move away from that deficit-based tragedy narrative that is so pervasive right across healthcare and move towards a neurodiversity affirmative approach because of the impact that that will have on the outcomes for autistic kids and adults, and particularly in terms of mental health. I think the academic side of things really reinforces that. Within the medical sphere, 
you can say as much as you like about advocacy uh, and the positive sides of, of any kind of difference, but medics don't tend to change practice unless they can decide that something is evidence-based. And often evidence-based means published research work and, uh, and peer-reviewed opinion pieces. So one of the things that I'm trying my best to bring into ADI is, is the peer-reviewed publications um, to try and change the academic discourse in the area. And once the academic discourse has changed, that will filter into clinical practice. So you have a recently published uh, bit of research. It's, it's in the British Medical Journal. We had a paper published by British Medical Journal Open, uh, which is a sub-journal of the British Medical Journal Group. It came out, I believe, on February 22nd. Um, so that was a, an international cross-sectional study. And we looked at barriers to accessing healthcare and self-reported adverse outcomes. And we compared responses from between autistic adults and non-autistic adults who also aren't parents of autistic children. Really, the drive for that was to check out what these barriers are, to give some evidence to the fact that they are worse for autistic people, and, and to try and associate some of these barriers with adverse outcomes. And I think the, the paper in many, many ways achieved that. I think we've all taken different massive things from this paper. But the biggest one for me is the fact that we found no significant differences between people formally diagnosed as autistic and just self-identifying as autistic. People are waiting many years, up to, up to a decade for a diagnosis, following having overcome these barriers to get to a GP and ask for a referral. Um, so this really validates the experiences of all of these people waiting in an endless system to have their self-identity validated. You, you've all obviously had the experience yourselves of going to GPs or hospitals and having issues that you now know are connected to your autism. So uh, how did you become aware that this was uh, a widespread problem and what gave you the impetus to do the research? Um, I think initially it started back in 2018 when I was asked by As I Am to do some training for GPs down in Clonakilty as part of the Autism Friendly Town initiative. And I was very keen that the training that I would provide would be based not just on my own experience of autism, but on the lived experiences of the wider autistic community. So we just did an informal survey asking very simply, what do you wish your GP knew about autism? And the data that I got back from that survey was absolutely mind-blowing. I had no idea, for example, the, the challenges that people faced in terms of accessing GPs. I had no idea that my own difficulty using phones was shared by so many of my autistic peers. And that was what led to doing the wider online survey. So that was very surprising to you. Yeah, I just hadn't connected the fact that I avoid using the telephone with being autistic. I hadn't realized that I was actually avoiding making needed GP appointments because of difficulty with the phone. I think at that point, I had already had a delayed diagnosis purely because I hadn't managed to rearrange a specialist appointment. And I just assumed that was me being flaky or me being disorganized or, you know, it just never occurred to me. Whereas when we did this survey, the data shows that 78% of the autistic respondents avoid using the telephone. It's not necessarily that we can't, because we can when we have to, but it is so difficult, so anxiety provoking, that it's just, we just don't. When we, when we can, we avoid it. I mean, even at work, 
I'll walk from one end of the hospital to the other to talk to a colleague face to face rather than pick up the phone. Was it people from Ireland and the UK or from everywhere? From all across the world. We had some uh, uh, Irish respondents. I think about 15% of our autistic cohort were Irish. About half from the UK, but from everywhere else. And they all lined up pretty similar across the board? Yeah, there was a lot of similar experiences. 80% of the autistic group said that they had difficulty um, attending a GP uh, when they needed to. This wasn't just in general. This is, you know, when people had a reason to go to the GP, they delayed or avoided. And that was in contrast to only 37% of the non-autistic group. We did analyse based on the the available numbers in each country, some geographical stuff, but uh, ba- based on the numbers needed, we the analysis essentially had to be UK versus everywhere else. But when we did that, for, for, there were a fair few barriers where there were the experiences just for the autistic respondents were significantly worse in the UK than they were in the anywhere else group. There weren't the respondents in Ireland to be able to do Ireland versus elsewhere in a statistical way. I think there's one group that's really that was really interesting that I would like to look at in more detail. And that was the group of people who were entirely outside of the healthcare system. When we piloted this survey, one of the responses that we commonly got back was, I don't go to GPs at all. The one thing the survey doesn't ask is, what about those who can't go to a GP? And we realized that that was a big omission, omission the first time around when we piloted it, because we tend to assume in healthcare that patients are in the system and will therefore present for healthcare when they're unwell. And that is the case for most people, but for the autistic community, that's not necessarily the case. So we found that there was a minority of the autistic group who didn't have a GP, who had no way of contacting a GP, who just simply did not go to doctors. And while there was also a minority in the non-autistic group, when we looked at the reasons, they were very significantly different. And also when we looked at the adverse outcomes, they were also very significantly different. Of the group of autistic non-attenders, the vast majority had, they all had difficulty attending, and the vast majority had had at least one adverse healthcare outcome. Whereas the group of non-autistic people who didn't attend um, or who didn't have a GP, their reasons were very different. They were didn't have time to go to a GP. Only, only half of that group had any difficulty attending a GP. So this was a group of people who could go if they needed to, but didn't need to go. Whereas the autistic group was very, very different. So I would like to look at that in more detail because I think that's a group that's neglected in, in, in healthcare research. The degree of isolation and lack of support in particular that autistic people had in terms of accessing the healthcare system was really important because what it showed was that a significant minority didn't have people to support them to access healthcare in the way that we tend to expect our patients to have. It just shows that we really need social care to step in and we need greater services for autistic adults in particular and for those in social care to recognize that autistic adults need support to access healthcare. Would you like to tell us about your recent psychiatry editorial? Um, so, so we wrote an editorial recently that has gone into the British Journal of Psychiatry, looking at the strengths of autistic psychiatrists because it was aimed at the Royal College of Psychiatrists because they have an equality action plan. And, and the Royal College of Psychiatrists are, are very progressive about all this sort of thing but neurodiversity haven't really hit their agenda so far. So we wanted to show that autistic psychiatrists exist, 
that, that we embody the core values that the college has for its psychiatrists. Originally, we had the idea for an editorial because we'd presented a poster at the International Congress of Psychiatry about autistic psychiatrists and the value of peer support. And we had talked about medicine and psychiatry within it selecting for autistic strengths. So we, we seek out people with these qualities. They become doctors. Some of them become psychiatrists. And then we're surprised that psychiatrists exist within our ranks. <coughs> and we couldn't really be surprised because we've actually been selecting people like us all along. We were very lucky to be selected for the um, rapid fire presentations at the International Congress. Um, but obviously that is a huge Congress. So there are days of, of talks, lots and lots of posters. We wanted to get it across more widely. And I'm really hoping that the Royal College of Psychiatrists will lead the way because they will be the first medical Royal College to look at neurodiversity and neurodivergent doctors and, and, and to support them. Um, and we're hoping that, that other colleges have, have things in the pipeline too. And I, I already know from posts on Facebook and Twitter and, and LinkedIn, pe people are specifically saying thank you who, who are not in the healthcare profession, autistic individuals, acquaintances and friends saying, saying thank you, we have some hope that things can change. And obviously we're very conscious that, you know, our, our profiles are only certain profiles within the autistic community. We, we can't possibly be representing everyone, but we're incredibly privileged in, in that we've got a voice within this. And so we want to use that voice to give the people that aren't being heard more of a voice. Thank you all very much for talking to me. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an Irish Medical Times podcast. For more on Irish Medical Times, go to imt.ie or contact us on Twitter at imt underscore latest or contact us on LinkedIn.